Bienvenue and welcome. And if you are following in the book series, welcome to book three. If you're listening to podcasts, depending on where you're listening to it, then welcome to episode 26 or series three, episode something. It's all getting confusing. So we just started numbering from 2020 onwards again. So welcome to episode 26, I think. Today's date is the 17th of July 2020, or year one, if we are counting from the apocalypse onwards. So a very quick burst of disaster roundup news. This is the week that our Prime Minister, Dominic Cummings, decreed that a second culling could commence by opening up music and theatrical performances in the open air, meaning that all festivals and open air theatres are now panicking as they will be back on with people not wanting to go, and they can't cancel as they would be financially liable. There may be a big push for open air events so we can all get together and catch this airborne virus, thus killing off lots of people and meaning we don't need to finance as many artistic things as the audiences die off. This news was met a few days later by lots of outdoor planned events cancelling due to localised lockdowns and the death rate and infection rate going up in England. Open air festival planners and large events then have come out today saying they looks like next year's events will all be cancelled as well. The government have finally had to admit that wearing face masks actually works, and now by law, we will all have to wear them in shops. However, there is no plan to bring in more police to force this to happen, so good luck enforcing that one. Probably within a week or two, nobody will bother. England is now at the point of about one in a thousand people dead, and no one seems to care. I, however, managed to get in some safe, socially distanced paranormal investigating in Wales this week, as they've now allowed people to travel more than five miles. I went to two excellent venues, Candleston Castle and Ogmore Castle, without much in the way of paranormal happenings that I experienced, but some excellent stories about the place that we will eventually get onto when we reach the letter C. If you're anywhere near Port Talbot, then head down to the shore and find those two excellent free venues. You'll not be disappointed. You may even get to spot some amazing natural sights, such as the second highest sand dune in Europe. And, like as I did, a, a wild stag and several deer run out of the woods in front of me. More importantly, I'm not just excited about the fact that I got to go back to one of the most beautiful countries in the world, that being Wales, and I got to investigate a couple of amazing venues, but also that this episode is going to be the start of book three. If you're buying the books, another one coming out in about six weeks, as well as Tom and Danielle feverishly writing away as they compile a book of true paranormal tales that we've been given over the years. So lots to look forward to as we are joined by Danny and Tom in the book front. But let's move on and talk about Bispham in Lancashire. B-I-S-P-H-A-M. Now, this area has habitation since the Stone Age, so it's hardly surprising that there must be a ghost story or two associated with an historic site such as this. Of course, yet again, we have a phantom hound, this time seen mostly around Bispham Hall. Another spook that is rather dangerous to investigate is a ghostly figure that is seen slowly walking along the railway tracks, particularly on stormy nights. Now we have the absolute pinnacle of ghost hunting spooks to find. In the I Spy book of ghost hunting, this has to be the 100-point spook to spy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, The Phantom Flasher. He's said to resemble a Victorian gentleman who does not exactly exhibit gentlemanly behaviour. The description given is that he wears a great coat, hat and boots, and that's about all he wears. Admittedly, this may just be a flasher with very specific tastes in overgarments, but 
When he has performed his little nudie show, accompanied by his own phantom laughter, he then disappears, and I don't mean into the bushes, I mean into thin air. Two witnesses by the name of Janet Beasley and Susan Stead, or Steed, are residents of Blackpool, and at the time of sighting, they were in their early 60s. They say they saw everything, and I'll let Janet tell us more. We were wheeling our trolleys out of Sainsbury's when this man in a large hat approached us. He was a tall chap with a long coat and leather boots. Susan, please tell us more, or are you too traumatised? No, she carried on with the description. But there was a gap between his coat and boots, and I noticed he was not wearing socks. Janet carried on. Only my trolley between us when he did it. Janet sounded almost disappointed. Susan carried on. He opened his coat so wide his arms went up to his shoulders. I have no idea who's what that means, who has arms that don't go up to their shoulders. Janet, now emphasising how traumatised she really is, said, Then he laughed in a sort of scary way and vanished. Susan finished their statement with, I was impressed by that, but nothing else. Yes, this does make us think of the old joke about the flasher who surprised two old ladies in the park. He flashed and one old lady had a stroke the other couldn't reach. Blackburn, Lancashire. At least this time, if you are hanging around, you'll not be questioned about your intentions, as this happens near the Mill Hill bus stop area, so you can always pretend you're waiting for a bus. The sound of stampeding horses has been heard by people stood in this area, yet obviously, when investigated, there is no herd of stampeding, rampaging beasties. Sometimes the phantom horses have also been seen, but the majority of incidents look like they may have been auditory only. There's a rather famous video going around the internet, so take some time to get in front of a decent-sized screen and look up Blackburn Roadside Ghost to watch what looks like some terrified people in a car screaming at someone in a weird costume waddling along a road. I'm sure this is real footage of someone being scared, but I could not stretch that definition to include a real spook. Feel free to take a look, as it is quite interesting and vaguely funny. Heading out of Blackburn, we can go for a stroll through Billinge Wood. That's B-I-L-L-I-N-G-E. Though we may be joined by the Invisible Man, but like all good Invisible Men, they are not capable of being seen. This one is, however, capable of being heard walking along beside you. There is also a physical manifestation that occurs when he arrives, however, for the trees are said to dramatically change appearance. He may be the ghost of a former highwayman, as a highwayman ghost has been spotted in the woods and in the area of Billinge, including riding on horseback through the village, which was originally his hideout. Blackpool, Lancashire. For those of you who do not know Blackpool, let me tell you it's an amazing place that you will either love or hate, or more likely both. This town really sums up all that there is that's right and wrong about the English seaside resort, with some of the most elegant, beautiful sights, and some from right out of the gutter of humanity. I have to admit it, I love it for those reasons. Any town that is full of tacky seaside shops is fine by me. There are shops in these towns that make no sense. You can buy offensive racist figurines, sexually explicit toys, as well as kids' beach toys with buckets and spades, as well as sugar-packed sweets and awful clothing. It is a totally different universe to taste, and I love it. The tourists in Blackpool have always been catered to with the famous Blackpool Illuminations allowing the party atmosphere to carry on even in the dark. When the original illuminations actually started, they had a total of uh, six light bulbs. <laughs> so what do the tourists come for, I hear you shout? No, all right. Admit it, <laughs> one of you out there shouted it. 
Well, they come for things like Blackpool Pleasure Beach, which is actually not a beach reserve for swingers and adventurous people like our Phantom Flasher, but a small theme park with lots of rides and roller coasters. One ride should be haunted, the ghost train, and apparently it is. The ghost on the train is called Clogger. It is claimed that he was a former employee who wore clogs, so not exactly difficult to know where his nickname came from. From the day he died, people claim that they have heard his distinctive footwear clumping around the ride. Other rides have included the Alice ride, which is supposedly home to a hanging man that appears dangling away before disappearing. Another ride is rather unfortunately haunted by a blood-spattered woman, which is not the kind of thing you expect to find in the Tunnel of Love. The park is over 100 years old, and one of the first developed rides there was called Sir Hiram Maxim's Flying Machines. And to find the ghost near this one, you need to go near the gift shop, where it's claimed the spirit of a nine-year-old girl could be seen. Sadly, these tales are often in places that seem a little too commercial to be useful or trustworthy, especially when, to find a ghost, you have to go to a gift shop. (laughs) Up until this week, it was nice and easy to ghost hunt these areas with just a looking around and through the gates. It was nice and quiet with no tourists, so it's not exactly safe to go there at the moment, as the English are notoriously stupid regarding this Covid outbreak and almost seem to be actively encouraging their families to get lurgy, now with at least one in a thousand of us dead in England. It might mean next year there'll be less tourists and make a lot of our investigations easier. You might even experience the poltergeist in the gift shop that rearranges things, but this tends to be overnight. So, can we catch a tram or seafront train and be safe in Blackpool? Well, that depends. Hopefully, they'll be cleaning them after each journey but I can't imagine they'll be disinfecting and people keeping distances. But more importantly, are you actually on a tram? Or is it a ghost tram? It has been claimed by many people that after the regular trams have stopped running, then they would be followed by a ghostly silent tram gliding down the seafront on the tram lines. There are other forms of haunted transport on the seafront, and sadly, no, we are not looking for phantom donkeys. Instead, it is a phantom cyclist. This sighting dates on the 15th of August 2014. The witness was walking along the promenade when a cyclist slowly approached him. For a split second, the witness looked away and then returned his gaze to where the cyclist was. There was nothing. On recalling the description of the cyclist, he claims it was as if the man was in monochrome, a blue or grey shade to him. There's a well-known story about a taxi driver taking a passenger near the crematorium and on arrival finding a ghost in the rear of the car, terrifying him and his passenger, However, it's not much use to us as we cannot investigate a taxi back in 1936. We can, however, investigate the Carlton Crematorium, and yet again we have a calendar ghost, and of course this one's Halloween. Personally, I don't believe in calendar ghosts as they never turn up on the date they're supposed to, and I definitely will be doing more important things at Halloween as it's one of my busiest days of the year. Should you be at a loose end, and this year lots of us won't be hanging around with strangers in haunted theatres and castles, you could head here and investigate to see if you can find the ghost of a horse that races towards the gates and then vanishes. There are so many stories about haunted Blackpool, but so many are about haunted piers, theatres, shops, arcades, guest houses, none of which are accessible to us right now. When we finished our Alphabet series of free accessible places, I think we might be doing a similar one about indoor venues, which could give us an excuse to get into as many haunted pubs as we can. Until then, let's jump on a boat and head out to sea as we set sail for... Blackhead Cave, Isle of Man.
There are many tales of smugglers all over the country, and if there is a coastline and a cave, then you can guarantee at some point a legend of smugglers or ghost, or more likely both have been attached to it. This one is no exception. The legend is that this cave once contained pirate treasure, and possibly still does, and that it has only one entrance that can only be accessed by the sea. This meant that to get to the treasure you need to head in on a boat, and there is no escape unless you sail back out again. One local man watched six figures in a small rowing boat head into the cave, knowing the legends any of us would be interested to see if they emerged with handfuls of pirate treasure, so as he was curious to know what they were up to, the man followed the figures, but they and their boat had vanished without trace. Black Hedden, Northumberland, that's H-E-D-D-O-N, We've spoken about many women in various different outfits, and now we will find another, this time in black, or more likely a child in black. Around the roads in the village she's been seen, and it's thought that she was killed by being trampled to death by a horseman. Perhaps the horseman had encountered the other strange entity that spooks and haunts the villagers. It's sometimes referred to as Silky and it has a habit of jumping onto the backs of passing horse riders. This obviously terrifies them, and the horse bolts away, and perhaps running off, trampling a young girl in black. Bladnock, Dumfries and Galloway. That's B-L-A-D-N-O-C-H. Yay! Back in Scotland and a castle again. At the moment, the best places to investigate are Scotland and Northern Ireland, as they're pretty much... They've eradicated Covid, so... If you can base yourself in Ireland or Scotland, you can get a lot of investigating done nice and safely. Now, having said that, always be careful when investigating ruined castles, especially late at night. There is a tale associated with the spook here and a name, that of Janet Dalrymple. The story is that on her wedding night, Janet went insane. I don't know why, but wedding nerves had turned into stabbing her husband. She was subsequently dragged away by the servants, and Janet's husband survived and recovered. Whatever it was that carried off Janet's sanity may also have carried her off as well, as she died shortly afterwards, apparently on the 12th of September, and if we believe in calendar ghosts, she's said to appear on that date. Blair Gowrie in Perthshire. Now that's a B-L-A-I-R-G-O-W-R-I-E. We have had many, many tales of black shucks, spectral dogs and beasties, and we head to Scotland for one more. This one, with a few added extras that takes us into the realms of legends, rather than reports. This spooky puppy is grey and very large, and haunts the A93 between Blair Gowrie and the Bridge of Calais and we are told it usually haunts just beyond a campsite to the east of the road. It looks like a real animal, as people have tried to drive it off the land and animals have run away in fear of the creature. This is where it gets slightly weird, as one report from a local farmhand claimed that the beast spoke, claiming to be a man by the name of Sutar. He said that he had killed his brother by setting his dog onto him, and that his punishment is to haunt the area in the form of a dog, it's not mentioned who dealt out this afterlife punishment, as the local sheriff does not normally have the power to transform people into beasties. The dog claimed that he is incapable of retaliating if it's attacked. However, if you do see a monstrous-looking werewolf creature, may I suggest you do not try out this hypothesis. Blakeney Norfolk. That's B-L-A-K-E-N-E-Y. Yet again we find another black shuck legend, and if you wish to find this one, it may be a good idea to hang around Little Lane. The legends and stories claim 
that this is the favoured haunt of the spectral beastie, but the main reason for investigating this lane is that it is also supposed to be the haunt of a ghostly horse and carriage. Blanchland, Northumberland. B-L-A-N-C-H-L-A-N-D. A fantastic bit of historical folklore and spookiness as we head to the Abbey. It was founded as a priory in 1165 by Walter de Bolbeck II, which is meaningless for our story, but I think it was an excellent name, and any spooky story associating with a Bolbeck is worth writing down just to hear American tourists saying the name when they visit, as it most definitely sounds like Bullbag. None of which tells us much about the ghost or their history, so we return to facts. It became an abbey in the late 13th century. Some actual history now that is relevant. As far as I can see, the monks here were premonstratensians. Hmm. Now, hands up anyone who knows what they are. They're also known as the Norbertines. So, has that made it any clearer? <laughs> well, in the British Isles, they have tended to be known as the White Canons because of their plain, undyed robes. So, we should be looking for white monks. If you see any others, then we obviously have ghostly spies. The order was founded by St Norbert in the early 12th century, and apparently it's still going today. We have spoken about locations near the Scottish border several times, and there is always a lot of death and raiding going on with a handful of pillaging. One legend states that during one raid in the area, the monks prayed that the abbey would be spared. It seems this may have done the trick, as a mist descended which hid the entire valley and monastery from view, and somehow the Scots just ignored it and went on their way. The ecstatic monks realised they were safe, and so offered praises to their god by ringing the bells in celebration, telling everyone in the valley the danger had passed. Sadly, they'd not passed out of earshot, and on hearing the bells they just turned around and then ransacked the place. Looking online, we can see uh, quite a bit more history. So here we go. There's a bit of a quote here. Over the years, the population of the abbey reduced, and by the early 16th century, there were only eight canons. And the abbey was finally suppressed in 1539. The abbey church was considered far too large for the inhabitants of the village, so a small chapel was built onto the tower to serve worshippers, and the remainder of the church was simply left to decay. So, what happened to the monks? Well, they like to pop back every so often. And they don't seem to have learnt their lesson, as they are reported to ring the bells as well as float around the grounds of the church, perhaps roller-skating in a bell-based-driven disco for eternity. If you have failed to see one of our favourite types of monks, the floaty or roller-skating variety, do not despair, there are other spooks to spots. Whilst in the area, you might see the pub, the Lord Crew Arms, which is haunted. But obviously, if we wish to stay safe... We won't be going in there. Instead, we can look outside for the ghost that goes by the name of Dorothy Foster, as she once worked there and has been seen walking towards the pub. I assume on her way back to work. Uh, she also haunts the pub. Now, let's head south, put on an accent so we sound like a local, so as not to be lynched as a plague-ridden tourist as we enter Blandford Forum, Dorset. A strange name for a town and often referred to as just Blandford. It is one of those little touristy type of towns that's not too big but has a lot of history. It's full of Georgian architecture, partly because the original town was mostly destroyed by fire in 1731. And due to George II donating a large amount of money, they managed to rebuild. A rather impressive town that, however, by today's standards, is tiny with a population of about 10,000 to 11,000 people. So perfect for a day of 
spook spotting without too many people around. Let us start with some lovely tales of people killing themselves. There's a small cross on the bridge over the River Stour, close by to the Crown. This cross is said to be a marker where a person committed suicide. There are a lot of legends associated with this, including a nun who supposedly killed herself, so I think this is a lot of legend, or there may just be a lot of suicides here. But the figure has been seen many times over the years. Of course, this area also has a phantom hound or shuck that roams around. This country is full of black shuck stories, and we do have to remember how the brain works, with its fight-or-flight response mixed with pareidolia. People will see what they expect to see, or the brain interprets. It reminds me of a tale near where I live that happened a few years ago in Bishop's Cleeve. A woman called a vet as a cat had somehow got into her house and was hiding on top of a wardrobe. She put down some food, hoping that it would get hungry and climb down. She couldn't reach, so called for someone to help the scared cat. On arrival, the vet said there was nothing that could be done, as she had been trying to entice a pair of slippers from the top of the wardrobe with cat food. The brain always tries to fit an image into a category and give you its best guess at what it is, and once the brain has settled on what it is, it's very difficult for it to change its mind. Therefore, people looking for a phantom nun might see a shadow and interpret that as a nun. People looking for a phantom dog may do the same. We always need to look for a rational explanation and cover all bases before we try feeding slippers with a tin of tuna. Other ghostly dog legends are a lot easier to disprove. At the Bryanston Gates, there are two large stone dogs sat on the gateposts. The local legend states that these two animals come to life at midnight and head off to the nearby river to get a swift drink in before returning for another day's duty of being a statue. Obviously, this would be an easy one to prove or disprove, and as there is no footage of this happening, I think we can safely assume it does not actually happen. However, One more dog ghost has been spotted along the road near Bryanston Woods, floating along looking ethereal as a slightly glowing white apparition. If we walk around these woods around here for long enough, we might get to add some more animals, as there are supposedly lots of ghostly dogs running around and barking. The shuck is also reported to have been spotted without its head. Other animals to look out for are horses, or at least one being ridden by a headless horseman. This one can be found at the edge of Cranbourne Chase and heading towards Ewen Steepleton North of this town. Now that's I-W-E-R-N-E, so that's Iwern, Ewen, not sure. It's claimed that he was decapitated many years ago whilst making this journey and continues making the journey forevermore. There was a battle in Grove Field that's now sort of woodland and fields many years ago with lots of death and all the associated unpleasantness that goes on with such behaviour. And with death we have funerals, and a phantom funeral with pallbearers is said to be witnessed to this day. Our phantom menagerie is going to grow in size by at least one sheep, for if we go to Sheep Market Hill and or possibly Damery Street, then we have tales of phantom sheep, sometimes headless and sometimes just as little as a lone sheep, though I have no idea if the singular sheep has a head or not. If it is just one headless sheep, then perhaps we're actually witnessing a ghostly cloud walking down the road. There are many other ghostly tales about this quaint little town, but they seem to be mostly indoors, so we can stay no longer, and instead we must go somewhere bleak, or even bleak Rivington, Lancashire. We go from headless animals and riders to the exact opposite, a bodiless head. There is a road near the vicarage that claims to have a phantom head at ground level. 
It's thought that the road level has massively increased over the years, and in reality, what we're witnessing is a ghost on horseback that in life was way below ground level, and therefore we can only see its head. I'm looking forward to reports in the future where the ground level keeps increasing and we're told of the phantom high-speed wig that appears to be running around the floor. Blenkisop Castle, Northumberland. Now this is B-L-E-N-K-I-S-O-P-P. And the ancient manor of Blenkinsop was held by the, rather unsurprisingly, Blenkinsop family from the 13th century. And they created a large tower house, which is in reality different from a castle. It did technically become a castle on the 6th of May in 1340, when a licence to crenellate the house was granted. This meant they could add the bit to the top of the walls that made it look like a castle, a task for which apparently you need planning permission from the king. This is not an easy one to investigate as the castle is partly in ruin and other parts of the castle are in use. I think therefore we do need to know a little history and the legend of the building to get into the spooky vibe and hopefully spot the white lady that floats around the ruins. Once upon a time there was a knight that went by the name of Brian, Brian de Blenkinsop. He was apparently good at his job, that being a knight, but not a great human being. He had a love for the finer things in life and wealth. The story tells us that at a wedding of his neighbour, the assembled guests all raised their drinks in a toast. Not to the wedding couple, but to the knight. A toast to Brian de Blenkisop and his lady love. It's uncertain if there was any love in question, or just a hopeful toast to a future bride. This toast was not well received, however, as he leapt to his feet in rage, and mostly alcohol. Never shall that be until I meet a lady possessed of a chest of gold heavier than ten of my strongest men can carry it to my castle. Never has a more romantic word been spoken. He was sober enough to realise that he just revealed his innermost thoughts and weaknesses to his friends and neighbours. The knight felt he was failing in his ideals of courtly love and showed his greed. So ashamed, he excused himself from the table, riding home, and it was only a day or two later that he set sail for the Crusades. That was our pre-theme tune taster, and now, as the title sequence has played out, the phrase, many years later, fades onto the screen. For it was years later that he returned. He brought with him a wife, and unlike the pale, white-skinned English girls, this was a darker-skinned foreign wife, along with her attending ladies-in-waiting. We can safely assume that she was not short of a few pounds, as she's now had in her possession a massive metal-bound box which seemed to contain the dowry that he had received by marrying this lovely bride. It supposedly was crammed full of gold and jewels, and the legend states that it took the strength of twelve men to carry it to the castle. Even pre-Facebook news travels fast, and soon everyone knew that Sir Brian de Blenkinsop was home with a new bride, and perhaps he'd won the lottery as it was thought he had now had the biggest fortune in the north of England. Let it be a lesson to us all that you should be careful what you post on Facebook or Instagram when you are young, as these things will hang around forever, as did Brian's statement about having a rich wife. She soon heard of his previous behaviour and basically felt like she was only married because he wanted her money. She, being a woman so badly ill-treated, decided that she would hide the money by burying the gold in a tunnel, leading off of one of the vaulted basements of the castle. Whilst he was off fighting in some skirmish, she hid the box, and it has apparently never been recovered. The other thing that went missing was Brian himself, after he became enraged yet again and stormed off, never to be seen again. It seems as though his wife was not best pleased, and actually regretted her behaviour for Brian had gone off on holiday once more to the Crusades. 
She sent off people and search parties looking for him, but after a year or two she gave up, packed up her belongings, and one must assume the treasure possibly, and headed off, never to be seen again. Never seen again, that is, until after her death, for she is seen walking the ruins, supposedly forever grieving for her lost love, or possibly in search of the treasure that she may have left behind. It may be that the treasure is cursed, for in the 1960s the National Coal Board advised that the entrance to the tunnel leading to the vault and beyond should be sealed. This was all because of an accident when a workman exploring the tunnel was overcome by some form of toxic gases. Thankfully he was rescued just in time. If you're planning on exploring the area, there's a nearby campsite, from which there are several ghost stories associated with this, and people claim to have seen the figure on the path leading to the ruins. There are other tales of the ghost being spotted in parts of the castle that still stand, but as we can't get into those, we cannot investigate, but it is claimed that people have interacted with the spook. We are not yet done with Blenkinsop, as about a mile to the north of the castle is Blenkinsop Hall, sat on the top of the hill overlooking the Carlisle to Holtwhistle Road. This is yet another castellated mansion, but this time built in the early 1800s. It was constructed on top of the site of a medieval tower and is reputedly haunted by a black dog which appears as a warning of death. So, yet again, another spooky puppy that brings us to the end of another episode as I get drowned out by the sounds of that excellent ukulele band that is Frankenstein's Lobster, meaning I've only got time left to say stay safe, stay sane, and keep spook spotting. Goodbye!